Good morning. So, uh, a little bit out of retirement, and I don't preach nearly as often as I used to, but still glad to be able to once in a while. It's great for me, and I hope uh, it's meaningful for you today. I was asked just a little over a week ago and said yes, and then I realized how crazy my schedule was, so it's been a bit of a challenge to be as prepared as I would like, and so the slides are pretty basic, as you will see today, but uh, it is an interesting passage that I look forward to sharing. Uh, as Ben said, the Siders are on vacation, of course, with Dave resigning, and Ben didn't want to do worship leading and preaching today, as he was the available worship leader, so uh, what do we do? Well, we call out old Goodman, see if he'll, he'll fill in, so here I am. We... Uh, are preaching through Ephesians, <laughs> and I just did it. I learned growing up, you know, it's kind of like learning to say because instead of because, or wash instead of wash. I've always said Ephesians, like it's spelled E-P-H-I-S-I-A-N-S, and a small group up in Michigan I was leading, I would do that, and they would just give me a terrible time about it. So I'm telling you up front so you won't be bothered. I'm going to try to say Ephesians, but it may come out Ephesians from habit once in a while. But in spite of my pronunciation problem, it is one of my favorite books. It is just a great book on the church, and that's what our series is about, is God's grand plan for the church. It is a book that um, in the first half is more doctrinal in nature, as we're going to talk a little bit more as we finish up this first half of the book about God bringing the Gentiles into his plan for the church where he had previously worked primarily through the theocracy, the nation of Israel. But as we get into the last half of the book of Ephesians, there is tremendous application about the church that will be very important for all of us to learn together. I uh, think it's also important to us as we look at this doctrinal part because for the most part, the American church is a Gentile church, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, there, are, there is a Messianic Jewish Christian movement uh, in our country and in the world, which has gained some growth and steam in the last few decades. But primarily, the church today is a Gentile church, and it's uh, an interesting phenomenon how that has evolved throughout the history of the world. So the fact that God chose to expand uh, the way that he was working through the nation of Israel through Jesus Christ to bring in Jew and Gentile and make them together one church, one humanity, one nation is very important to us uh, because otherwise we would not be here today. So sometimes as we talk about the church though, as we look at the church as God's grand plan, we know we fall far short of what it's supposed to be. And that the reason for that is because it's filled with people like you and me. <laughs> it is our humanity. It is our human weaknesses that cause the church sometimes to fall far short of what it's supposed to, do, to be. Uh, there was an, a, a minister who was a great communicator and well-known named Fred Craddock in the Christian churches. And I heard Fred one time, and he was a little man who had, I think he planned out every gesture and every emphasis of every word he was such a great communicator, and I just, this stuck in my mind from hearing him speak. He, he talked about the church, and he goes, ah, oh, the church, the church, the church, the church. We just get glimpses, 
Just tiny little glimpses of the kingdom of God. That's all we get. <laughs> as best I remember, that's the way he did it. And it's true sometimes. When the church is what it's supposed to be, it's magnificent. We get glimpses of God's kingdom and we experience the richness and depth of his love and his power. We hold each other up, we support each other, we strengthen each other, and we make a difference out in the communities around us. We are penetrating a salt and light in the world. When it's good, it's magnificent. But when it's not, it can get pretty messy. And it's we humans that make it so messy when we don't live out obediently the plan that God has for us and the power that he has for us. So as we jump into our text today, before we jump into the actual text of Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, let's talk about the word mystery just for a moment because Paul's going to use it a few times in this text. In English, a mystery is something dark, obscure, secret, puzzling, like the Agatha Christie book that Barb and I just listened to as we travel on our audible plan. The book, And Then There Were None. Anybody ever read that Agatha Christie book? Uh, it was a puzzler, and we get the answer in the end. Uh, the Greek word mysterion, though, is different. Although it still is talking about a secret, it is no longer, it's a secret that is no longer closely guarded, but is open. Originally, in Greek, the word referred to a truth which someone would have initiated into a secret society, just as we would have secret societies today, uh, that only those who are initiated get to know the inside truth about. But in biblical usage, the word was expanded, and it became a word which talked about truths which, though beyond human discernment and understanding, have been revealed from God and are open to all for understanding. So the mystery we're going to talk about today is a mystery that God kept to himself in part. He revealed partly his plan for the church, but he did not reveal it fully until Christ came and as he gave revelation to the apostles and Paul. So there, there will, however, always remain a certain amount of mystery to our Christian faith. As I've worked with some individuals in their journey to become Christians, I've tried to explain to them that we don't have all the answers. There are a lot of things we don't know fully or fully understand. And we may wish that God had given us more information, that he had told us everything and answered to every question that we would ever have. And maybe we'll ask God someday, why didn't you tell us more so we would understand more easily? But we do base our faith upon what we do know. We have so much evidence of the authority of Scripture and the reliability of the New Testament we have so much information and history about Jesus Christ and about his life, death, and resurrection. We have truth that we base our lives on. It's our foundation, but we do have to live with a certain amount of uncertainty and unknowing about aspects of the biblical faith and about the world in which we live. We have to live with some mystery, some unknowns that are not fully yet revealed to us. So let's jump into our text with that background. The first uh, verse that I want to show you is actually verse 6 in the middle of our text, which tells us what the mystery is that Paul is talking about. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. 
This is a mystery you've been learning about if you've been here the last few weeks from the first two chapters of Ephesians. We have learned that the nation of Israel was God's chosen vessel, that he worked through them. And we know if we look back in time that God had uh, indeed planned to reveal more about uh, his plan than what actually got revealed. When he called Abraham, he asked Abraham, promised him he would build a great nation in his name, and that his people were to become a blessing to other nations, that those he would bless, that Israel would bless, God would bless. Those he would curse, God would curse. As we study the history of the Old Testament, we find that the nation of Israel falls far short of what God wanted it to be. As you look at the prophets, Amos and uh, others, Micah, they condemned the nation of Israel because they did not live out the love of God for others that he intended for them to. They did not love the strangers in their midst. They did not love the widows and the orphans the way they were supposed to. Uh, the prophets say the Israel, nation of Israel's hands were full of bloodshed because it failed to live out and demonstrate the love that God intended for it to have for others. By the time that Jesus came, we know that the nation of Israel was uh, separated from other nations, that there was a dividing wall of hostility between Israel and all Jewish nations. There had been wars and conflicts. There had been occupations, and just as they were now occupied by the nation of Rome, and they hated the Romans. And so the Jews and Gentiles were at enmity. They were at, at odds with one another. They were not at peace. And enters Jesus Christ. How many of you have seen The Chosen? Uh, if you haven't, I strongly encourage you to watch it. It's, it's free. If you get Angel Studios version, I think maybe you stream on some other streaming services as well. And I've seen a lot of religious uh, broadcastings, most of which I was not a huge fan of, pretty stilted in the past. And The Chosen is different. It is faithful to the scriptures, but it brings in interpretations of what life might really have been like for people around uh, at that time, how the disciples interacted with each other. But one of the things that really points out is how hard it was for the chosen disciples of Jesus to love Gentiles. When he told them to go to Samaria and to minister uh, in those communities, and when they would stop to visit with a woman at the well from Sychar of Samaria, they, were they just couldn't believe. Why, why are we doing this? They hated the Gentile peoples, the non-Jewish peoples at that time. There was this enmity, this brokenness. And they didn't want anything to do with those who were not a part of the Israel world, the Israelite world. It was hard. It was tough. It was changing centuries that had been built up of animosity and brokenness. But Christ now opened that kingdom to Gentiles. So we do know from Scripture that God intended always for his love to go to all peoples. It was what he taught Israel. It was what he taught Abraham, what he taught the nation of Israel through the prophets. It's what he demonstrated through Jesus Christ. But it had not fully taken root. It was a mystery that had not been fully revealed until Christ came and began to demonstrate through his disciples that, he, that the love was to be for all peoples, that his nation, his family, the family of God, was for people of all nations of the earth, that no longer was God going to work through a nation, a theocracy like Israel, 
but now a universal kingdom, a universal family of all nations of the earth are part of God's eternal kingdom. This was a major change in the history of how God was working in his world. It was huge uh, at this point in time. So what we want to look at for a moment now is Paul's role in this new revelation, this new unfolding, the fullness of God's mystery. He had not fully hidden his love for the, all peoples, but it had not seeped in into its fullness until Christ came. And until he revealed to Paul and the apostles his intent for this. So Paul became a missionary to the Gentile nations. As you, you know the story, we won't take much time for it today, but he was a Jew, a Jew, a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was so committed to his belief in Israel and what he thought the Messiah would be that he hated this new uh, false prophet, Jesus, and his followers, and he persecuted them. He had followers of Jesus killed and, and murdered because of his zeal for protecting what he understood to be the truth of Judaism. But God gave Paul a unique experience on the road to Damascus where he appeared to him, revealed himself to him, and struck Paul blind, sent him in later to be healed of his blindness, but with a commission. He gave him revelation that now the gospel was definitely for all nations of the earth. He also gave him a commission that he was to be the one to take the message of God to the Gentile nations. And Paul did that for his life. Three major missionary journeys traveling all over the, the civilized world at that time, communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to others. But as we look at this text, and if we look at our next slide, what we see here is that Paul does what he does sometimes in his side or interrupts his chain of thought. So in, in this slide, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul starts and says, For this reason, I, Paul, I don't think we've got there yet, uh, the fifth slide, uh, Ian, is that it? Okay, all right, I'm just, it's not the way I have it shown here, but that's because I said that these are pretty basic slides. <laughs> for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then he stops his thought. I think he's starting a prayer, because down in verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. And then he gives this marvelous prayer. It's a prayer that God will fill the, the Christians at Ephesus with the fullness of his love and that he will empower them to do exceedingly abundantly things beyond what they can even ask or imagine. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture, the last part of chapter 3. But in between verses 1 and 14, he he changes his flow. He started to pray, and then he thought, wait, wait a minute. Because <laughs> then his beginning of this, he's, he starts to write, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. But this interruption is now he's going to explain what he means by the sake of the Gentiles. What, what he means. He is not literally saying that the Gentiles put him in prison, which is the way it, was, it would seem to read. In fact, he was a prisoner of Nero, 
in the prison at Rome. And as he's writing this letter from prison to the church at Ephesus, he wants them to understand his heart for the Gentiles. And what he, is, what he does mean by this is it is his commitment of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles that got him in constant trouble. Everywhere that he went, he would preach to non-Jewish people and the Jewish leaders would stir up criticism and opposition against him. They put him in prison several times. It caused him to be beaten. He had all kinds of difficulties. It was his absolute commitment of preaching, the reality of preaching, his insistence on preaching to the Gentile nations and releasing them from the bondage to the legalism that had blocked them from the fullness of God's love for them. It's because he was so committed to the Gentile message that he was in prison. But then he wants to make sure that they understand. In fact, in verse 13, he says, and I don't have this on the screen, is that he does not want them to be concerned for him because it is for their glory that he has made this commitment to preach to the Gentiles. And the fact that he's in prison, don't worry about me. I'm doing what God called me to do. And it is for your glory that I have done this. So Paul dedicated his life to being a messenger of this fullness of mystery that was now revealed in Christ, that he wanted the gospel to go out to all peoples. In the next slide, we'll see that, that Paul uses the word mystery six times in explaining his major role in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. In verses back, I don't have a slide, but in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. God had waited till this time, his wisdom, his choice beyond our understanding. God chose this time to fulfill his ultimate plan for the church to become the place where the gospel of Jesus Christ would go to all peoples. In today's text, as we'll see in the next slide, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is the mystery made known to me for you, as I have already written briefly. And he continues and uses the word mystery again. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed. He's not saying it wasn't revealed at all. He was saying it was partially revealed, and now it's fully revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And Ian will pop back to slide four for me for verse six, where again we saw what the mystery is defined as, that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promises of Christ. And then the next slide in verses seven through nine, he'll use the word mystery once again. He said, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. And if we were to look forward to chapter 6, and again, no slide, but in 619, he says, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador's and am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So, all of this, and this, again, as I said, pretty basic doctrinal stuff. We, we, Paul is driving this home, and he's wanting the Gentiles to understand that though he's in prison on their behalf, not to worry about him, but that this has been his calling. This is the commission that God gave him, that God entrusted to him to be the first major missionary to take the gospel to Gentile peoples. It's that simple, really. But it's a huge thing in the history of the world, and it's a huge thing for us as well, if we fully can grasp that. I wanted to um, uh, skip ahead then to the next slide, and we'll talk a little bit about someone else that uh, this mystery is entrusted to, and that's us, the church. Verse, verses 10 through 13 of our text. Uh, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So there you have it. The church... We, the church, are to make known in the world the eternal purpose which God accomplished through Christ Jesus. This is not just preacher talk. It is God's plan. It's God's intent. One of my favorite verses was from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verses 9 and 10. And Peter says about this new nation, this new nation of Jew and Gentile together as one family, as one, as one nation as one holy people. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the power of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, Jew and Gentile were separate, they were not together. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Live such good lives among the pagans or unbelievers that they, though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. So let's talk as we close here about what this means to us, all this doctrinal stuff we've looked at today about Jew and Gentile. Um, three things that I kind of pulled out of the text in my heart when I studied through it. The first one is trust that God can use all of us to be his messengers. No matter our background, our failures, our weaknesses, our insecurity, and that we can confidently receive boldness and help from our Lord Jesus. Remember what Paul wrote in our text that we looked at? That he was the least, he was less than the least of all God's people. Why did he feel that way? Was he just a bad self-esteem? <laughs> You know, really down on himself. 
No, he, he had persecuted. He had murdered Christians. Think about that. He had murdered Christians for following Jesus, and now he is proclaiming Jesus to peoples who've never heard it before. Wow. I'm sure he was humbled that God reached out, revealed himself to him, rescued him, saved him, and commissioned him and empowered him for this major life transformation. I think most of us feel that way. Most of us have things in our past that we're not proud of. There are failures that we have created. There are wrongs that we have done. There are inadequacies that we feel. Most of us think, me? <laughs> Why would God use someone like me? That's a pretty common human feeling. But it's not what God intends. The scriptures teach us that when God established the church that we are a body, just like the human body has every part it needs. So there are three major teachings in scripture about the church as related to the human body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you because you don't do what I do. And Paul and other teachers compare that to how the church is to function. Some are teachers, some are leaders, some have the gifts of mercy, some have the gifts of administration. We can all do different kinds of things in the body of Christ. The important is that we should know that God does call all of us. He has called us to be his people who are declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, First Peter. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. We're to, we're to penetrate the world. We're to make a difference in how we live. We are the light of the world. We are the ones who are to bring hope in, in a world of darkness. God can use you. He doesn't want you just to be a spectator, just an occasional person who goes to church and, yeah, that's, I do that. I go to church once in a while. He wants you to be an active member of the body of Christ using your talents and your abilities and your gifts. We met with a man this week who uh, is a member of another congregation here in town, and he has accounting skills, and we're talking to him about taking over Dave's role of our accounting. And it was just wonderful to share with him because he had such a spirit of servanthood, a spirit of ministry, uh, using his accounting skills to help churches but also he's being trained in his church as a Stephen minister. You may not know what that is, but that's a program. We used it in the church where I led in Lawrence, um, home of Candace Jayhawks, just mentioned that. Uh, uh, <laughs> God's grace, divide, break down the dividing walls of hostility. The two shall become one flesh. Wildcats and Jayhawks will dwell together in the body of Christ. Let's get practical here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, the Stephen Ministry is a program which trains people to do lay ministry skills, to be able to come alongside uh, people who are in need of different kinds of problems, whether it's going through a divorce or whether they're suicidal or whether they have addictions. That's a really powerful training program. Uh, and I just love that, you know, here's a man who's a minister of the gospel. He's an accountant, but he's a minister of the gospel. And the old saying is, uh, to my, uh, I, I'll probably say this wrong, 
as I'm glad living here. My vocation is I'm an accountant, but my avocation is I'm a, a servant of Jesus Christ. All of us should have that viewpoint that our main role in life is whatever we do, however we function and serve, we are to bring glory to God through our Christian life, through our witness. God can use all of us. The next application I want to share is to trust in the church. In spite of how human weakness hinders it, as God's eternal plan to fulfill his eternal purposes and to call a united people to himself. I shared this in the introduction about how the church has often fallen so short, and indeed I would say that probably every church and every place at every time needs a certain amount of renewal and reform. We get frustrated with some of the structures that the churches have. We get frustrated with how ingrown it can be and how it, it gets focused in on itself and not what we're called to do to be light and salt in the world. And it's going to be that way because of our humanness. But God has not abandoned his church. It's his, it's his plan. It's his design. That's what this whole book of Ephesians is about, is that the church is God's design, his plan for reaching the world. Our goal is to be a center of Christ's honoring love and service, to lift up and encourage one another, to evidence the love of Christ within our community. It starts at home with our love for each other and our support and our working through our differences and our problems. When we do that, it's beautiful and magnificent. When we don't do that, it's messy and it's a, broken, a, a breaking of our, our, our intent and our witness. And I dream of being a church that works together, pooling our talents and resources to make a difference in our community. Although the outreach team here is working right now on trying to determine how we can best reach some of the needy people in our community, and that's important. That's one of the goals that we have is to be a church that, that does bring uh, Christ's love to those who need it the most, the least of the least in our midst. And that's a start. We're not quite there yet in figuring out exactly how that's all going to happen. I know in the churches that I've been fortunate to be a part of, we have really worked together to build outreaches uh, from food kitchens to Habitat for Humanity projects to work days for people in need, uh, celebrate recovery groups for all kinds of addictions, uh, grief care, divorce care, emotional healing workshops, marriage workshops. The list can go on and on. Uh, finding where people's needs are, meeting those needs as a way to connect and demonstrate God's love to them and to have an opportunity to bring them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To be compassionate because we care about people. What is the famous quote is when, when, whenever I serve Christ in words, uh, I mean in deeds, and when necessary to use words, it is our deeds that give our words power. It's when we demonstrate love and live it out that people are going to listen to us. But when we are separate and isolated and ingrown and infighting, our words are not going to have power. I'm not going to have influence and an effect. I dream that Mosaic will find ways together to demonstrate our compassion and our love into this community that we'll become known for as a place where Christ's love is abundant. The last application is more of the same, to have a vision, have a big vision for the church. 
Don't just trust in the church. Don't give up on it. And I, I, have, I have read articles about a new social group called the Dunners. Anybody heard of the Dunners? People have been in the church for maybe sometimes decades. And I've met several. I have friends like this who've gotten so frustrated when the church is weak, the church is weak because of its humanness and its failures, that it's just said, forget it. Uh, I love Jesus, but I, I don't want to be a part of a church anymore. <laughs> and uh, in the Barna study surveys, they've come to call this large group of people who've left the church in discouragement done, doneers, done with the church. But we can't do that. God, God isn't done with the church. God hasn't given up on it, as we said. He calls us to trust and stay with it. But it's more than trust. It's to have a huge vision for the church. Back in the day, in colleges, in Western civilization classes, there was a book written by a Christian theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. If you know the Serenity Prayer, by the way, he's the author of that prayer. Uh, what is it? Who can say it? There you go, right there. And the same theologian wrote a book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. And it used to be a major textbook uh, that was used in Western civilization classes and major universities and colleges, uh, no longer, I think. And his basic thesis is that social collectives will always act immorally. Uh, have you checked world history? Have you checked the news <laughs> about governments in our world right now? Our government falls short, and we're maybe the best. Democracy is the best, but it falls short. But the world is full of authoritarian governments with all kinds of abuse and violence. Terrorism reigns. It's pretty ugly. Because nations will always act in self-interest not other interest. So Niver's theory is that where men are, societies are immoral, men can be moral. Individuals can have a moral impact, and we know that from great leaders of history. Many men and women who have become known for their impact worldwide because they have lived out their lives so morally. And the church, in Niver's viewpoint, we should be beachheads. We should be staging points of morality and love in a world of darkness. We are the lighthouses. And by the way, lighthouses aren't in competition with each other. We need every church of all, all stripes. Lighthouses are not in competition, but lighthouses give hope and protect uh, from evil in a world of darkness. So I like that. I mean, I, I've always, that, that's been a major impact on me to have read Moral Man and Immoral Society and to understand and have a vision for what the church can be and the difference it can make. I, I cannot do this. I, I, don't, I had not planned to talk about my mission work <laughs> that I'm a part of where I get to just tell the story, but. We are working in the juvenile prisons in Central America, communities with tremendous violence, gang violence. We're working with young people in gangs out of the MS-13 and 18th Street gangs. We've had several hundred now, well, over 1,500 have completed our 
training classes in prison the last um, uh, seven years. Um, and our real heroes are our 35 Central American Christians, just ordinary church members, by the way, who took jobs with us to go into the prisons and love these kids and preach Jesus and teach them life skills. And the Supreme Court of Honduras has ruled that orphan helpers, because of its unique work in redeeming the lives of young people in the juvenile prisons, should always have a place in those prisons. We have been noticed by the highest judicial authorities of the country of Honduras. Just a month ago, three girls from a girls' prison, gang members who committed, a couple of them committed homicide, just got internships. They're going to law school through our work, and they got internships in the Supreme Court with a Supreme Court judge in El Salvador. It's amazing. The Honduras, a Supreme Court judge, visited El Salvador, learned about our work, and invited us to the country. I mean, she was from Guatemala and invited us to Guatemala. What I'm saying is that in this, our little program, which is not huge, uh, we're working with several hundred young people in very difficult circumstances, but the demonstration of the power of the gospel to change lives and the radical love of our teachers and their dedication. During the pandemic, they, they were not able to go in every day and so the government said, well, the only way you can come in is if you move in for three weeks. I'm going to lose this microphone yet. Uh, I don't know if I have small ears or what. I think it's the glasses. That uh, the only way that you can do this is if you come in for three weeks and live and sleep here for 21, I think it's actually 25 days. We didn't want to require our teachers to do that. They came to our administrators and said, we, we don't want to abandon the kids. We will do that. We will go in leaving their families during the pandemic to live in, uh, a, let me tell you, these are not, these are not U.S. prisons. <laughs> the conditions are bleak. Physical conditions are bleak. And man, the power that that had, what it said to the kids, what it said to the government leaders, what it said to the society, is that they loved that much Jesus and serving kids that they would make those sacrifices. I talked to him on a recent vision trip and I said, so how was the food? Oh, it was horrendous. It was horrible. It was horrible. I mean, they, they made some sacrifices, just like Paul did, because they are entrusted with the gospel to go to people that society has thrown away and forgotten, to young people who have committed horrible crimes and who would seem to not be worthy of being a part of God's church. But we're seeing the gospel transform them. It's beautiful. The gospel is powerful. The church is powerful. Have a vision for it. Believe in what we can do together. Don't, don't have a small vision. Have a big vision for Christ's church. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for calling Paul. I guess you knew what you were doing when you called him because... Wow, what dedication, what sacrifice, what commitment he lived out as our first great missionary to Gentile nations. Thank you for entrusting him with this new gospel, the full, fullness of gospel, which had not fully been understood prior to Jesus. And thanks for calling us into your church. And thanks for being willing to use people like us, who maybe aren't always the best, who have weaknesses. But if we trust boldly in your spirit, 
and trust in the truth of your words. We know you can use us in powerful ways to be moral men in, in the midst of immoral societies, to be light where there is darkness, hope where there is despair, joy where there is sadness, where we can bring transforming love and life. Use us, Lord. Empower us. Build our vision and call us into your service. Thank you for those who are already serving here in different ways in this church and this community. Lift them up and encourage them and help us grow and attract more and more people to be a part of a shared vision for being your church, a powerful church in this community. In Christ we pray. Amen. Invite you to, um, if the Lord, those serving the Lord's Supper would, would come up, and we're going to have a time to reflect and sing and take the Lord's Supper. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, he broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out on your behalf. And so we invite any who have put their faith in Christ uh, to come forward and, and um, just remember uh, the shed blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ, and you take the Lord's Supper. And if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, this is an invitation for you to sit and reflect and consider, maybe even cry out and, and ask God if he's real and if he desires relationship with you too. And so we invite you to do that. We, I invite you to stand and we'll do the Lord's Prayer together. And so let's, uh, let's, let's say this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil.